Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Happy Sabbath. I'm so glad you've joined us again this week. It's a strange time, isn't it? But we can still stay steady in our worship of God and our study of His Word. I'm so thankful to be a part of this service, the service in which we've all been participating already. But I will have to tell you this. These days are reminding me of my first days in ministry. It has not been since then that I've been on a week-by-week basis on what to preach. I thrive on planning and planning well ahead of time, but right now we're looking at it on a week-by-week basis. What do we need to talk about this week? So this week we're going to talk about something from a passage in the Old Testament. It's where we're going to begin. A passage in a book that, honestly, I don't even enjoy reading. I really actually dislike reading it. It's the book of First Chronicles. It's not that it's a bad book. It's just that it's filled with so many names. Ancient names, foreign names, hard-to-pronounce names, list of genealogies that feel like when you're reading through the book, they just go on and on and on. And yet, sometimes tucked away in a crease in the list, Sometimes in a pause in the genealogy, there's a line or a phrase or a statement that captures one's attention. And that's where I want to begin to get today in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. So first, a little bit of the context. It's a dangerous time in Israel, a time of turmoil. King Saul has died. David is assuming power, is about to assume the throne fully. It's one of those times in the period of a nation where there's topsy-turviness, if I could use that word. There's uncertainty. Things are unclear. One has to be very careful with whom one aligns oneself because to do so in the wrong way could cost you your life. Well, it's at that period of time, dangerous time, that men from all the 12 tribes of Israel are coming and aligning themselves with David. And here in 1 Chronicles 12, that's happening. The chronicler is writing. He's saying that the men from Judah came and the men from Levi came and the men from Simeon came. And he's going right down the list. And then he comes to the men from Issachar. 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. I want you, want you to notice what the chronicler has to say about the men from Issachar who are joining themselves to David's cause. He says this, From Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Two hundred chiefs with all their relatives under their command. Understood the times and knew what Israel should do. That's a passage for today, not just a passage for ancient Israel. I want to read you the words of Old Testament scholar Stephen Sean Toole, 
as he unpacks a little bit of what these words say. Issachar had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. This statement, writes Toole, may remind Christian readers of Jesus' words on the importance of reading the signs of the times. He says that in Matthew 16 and in Luke 12. Wise Issachar had the discernment to perceive God's hand upon David, the wisdom to sense the direction of the Spirit's leading, and the courage to act. So three things, says Toole. Discernment to perceive God's hand upon David. Wisdom to sense the direction of the Spirit's leading. And courage to act. And the chronicler captures all of that with those words. These men from Issachar understood the times and knew what to do. So that's the question that faces us today. Do we understand the times? Do we know what to do? I suspect that our answer to that question may come from the answer to a different question. The different question is this one. Is what we're currently facing, COVID-19 and all the related implications, is what we're facing a sign that we are living in the last days? Is what we're facing, we as a global community, a sign that we're living in the last days. I can hear some say, no, 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 these things happen and they've happened all along. It's just at a broader scale now because we live in a different kind of world. And I can hear others say, oh, absolutely, it's a sign. Certainly. I can relate to that because the world in which I grew up saw a sign in every headline, a threat in every event, an ominous warning behind the scenes in what was happening on the world stage. In fact, the world in which I grew up cried wolf often. Cried wolf about the coming of Christ. It's here. It's finally here. It's about to happen. In fact, cried wolf so many times that many just stopped listening. They were no longer interested. And so when someone comes along now and looks at COVID-19 and all the related implications and says, maybe this is a sign that we're living in the last days, people like that respond and say, come on, please stop sensationalizing every event. Have a mature, robust faith in Jesus. Don't sensationalize everything. I can understand that. But I do think we still have to ask the question, is what's happening, COVID-19, a sign that we live in the last days? So for an answer, I want to go to Luke's gospel, to the New Testament, to Luke's gospel, chapter 21. Now, those of you who have read Luke's gospel and read what's in this chapter know that what we find in Luke 21 is parallel to what we find in Matthew 24 and 25, and to what we find in Mark 13. In all three of those locations, Jesus is talking about the last days and his return. So that's what we're going to right here. It's what was read in our scriptural passage today. I'm going to reread a part of that. So again, remember the context. Context is always king when it comes to understanding scripture. 
Jesus and the disciples have been on the temple grounds, the magnificent temple grounds. And as they're leaving, the disciples call the attention of Jesus to what they see. Look at what's here, Lord. Isn't this spectacular? Isn't this amazing? And Jesus, in his response, says, you see all that? All thrown down. Not one stone on top of another. That's what's going to happen. And so they, like the men of Issachar, wanting to understand the times, they say to Jesus, wait a minute. When is that going to happen? What will be the sign that it's about to happen? The sign of your return. And so in those three passages, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, Jesus answers. So that's the context. So now we go to Luke 21 to look at this one piece of what Jesus has to say. I start reading in verse 8. He replied, watch out. <laughs> it's not particularly comforting that the first words out of his mouth are watch out. But that's what he says. He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. There's much in these chapters. Today, I want to narrow down and focus on just one verse, and that's verse 11. Verse 11, where Jesus says there will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places. Three signs he mentions. First one, earthquakes. Now, we who live in the part of the world where I happen to live know something about earthquakes. It's not infrequently that the ground trembles beneath our feet. But when a particularly large earthquake hits, a Christ follower or many Christ followers will say it's a sign of the last days. It's a sign of the end. They're saying, I understand the times like the men of Issachar. Earthquakes, that's the first one he mentions. Second one he mentions is famines. Famines, great food shortages. All it takes is a few clicks on the Internet to discover that there are not hundreds of thousands, not millions, but tens of millions of people right now on our planet who are experiencing famine, food shortage, food uncertainty, hunger. Certain parts of the world, it sadly is a very common event. So when people see that, they say, see, a sign of the last days, a sign of the end. They're saying, like the men of Issachar, we understand the times. And then Jesus gives a third sign in verse 11. Earthquakes, famines, and pestilences. Now, that's not a word we use very often nowadays. In fact, if you don't happen to read Scripture, I would wonder if you've ever heard the word pestilences has a very simple meaning from a scholarly source 
here comes the sense of the word. The sense of the word pestilence is any epidemic disease with a high death rate. Any epidemic disease with a high death rate. That's a pestilence. And that, quite frankly, is COVID-19. Any disease that causes a high death rate, Ebola, bubonic plague, go throughout history and track them. That's a pestilence. And Jesus here in Luke 21 says, that's a sign that you're living in the last days, a sign of the end. So we come back to our question. We want to be like the men of Issachar. We want to understand the times. We want to know how to respond. So the question is, is COVID-19 and all its related implications a sign that we're living in the last days? I would suggest to you that the answer to that question is yes. Absolutely. No question. It absolutely is a sign that we are living in the last days. But, maybe we need to unpack that just a bit. That term, last days, is an interesting one in the New Testament. The New Testament writers, in fact, I'll read you one of the passages where this is the most clear. It's in the letter to the Hebrews toward the end of the New Testament. The New Testament writers confess that the last days began with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. Hebrews is a letter that could probably be aptly summarized with the words, Jesus is better. The writer of the Hebrews goes through all kinds of religious realities of the day and time and points out how Jesus is better. And he starts out with that right at the beginning. Listen to Hebrews 1. Read the first two verses. In the past, that's way back there, in the past, God spoke to us, to our ancestors, through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So in the past, God spoke through the prophets and in various and sundry ways. But, says the writer of this letter to the Hebrews, in these last days, he has spoken through his Son. And then he goes on in all the chapters to come in the letter of Hebrews to talk about his Son, to talk about Jesus and how he is the epitome of God's self-revelation. So we are in the last days. We've been in the last days for a very long time. So the question then becomes, well, then, th then what's the purpose of the signs that Jesus gives in these chapters, in these Gospels? How are we to understand them? What are we to make of them? Well, it's interesting to me that when we read some of the signs, for example, in Luke 21. And we read things like wars, rumors of wars, and then what we read, famines, earthquakes, pestilences, and so forth. We immediately recognize and realize that those have happened all along since the very day Jesus spoke the words. It didn't begin just recently. 
They didn't begin just when the news media was able to make them known around the globe. They've been happening all along. You see, Jesus, I believe, here in this passage, is trying to talk to the disciples about the quality of time that will pass between when he speaks the words and when he will return. About the quality of time. Not the quantity of time, but the quality of time. In other words, he's saying, let me tell you what life will be like between now and when I return. And then he describes it. And what he describes is a very dire situation. It will intensify, that's fair to say. But it's dire throughout. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, I recognize and realize that my followers, as things unravel, as the world gets worse, as earthquakes shake the globe, as famines kill the population, as pestilences plague people, I realize people will be tempted to ask, has he forgotten us? Did he not know it was going to be this bad? Did he not understand that? And it's as though Jesus is saying, you will be tempted to think I have forgotten. But don't give in to that. I haven't forgotten. This doesn't catch me by surprise. This is not unexpected. This is the quality of time that will pass between now and the day that I return. So when such things happen, they are a sign that we are living in the last days. Now, truth be told, there has been a temptation on the part of some Bible students to burrow down into the intricate details of not only these chapters, but certain other passages in Scripture, and to try to tease out things that aren't written there, but which they say are there by implication. I've watched it time and again. I remember my college days. My college days, I was going to college in a small town. In this small town, there were a set of cassette tapes. Some of you will remember what those are. A set of cassette tapes that were duplicated and made their way all around the town. And they set that town on fire, on spiritual fire, they said. The, the, the man who spoke on the tapes was somebody I never saw. In fact, I don't believe I ever knew anyone in that town who had seen this man. I don't know where the tapes came from. But these tapes purported to tell the story of the end of the world and the coming of Christ taking passages like this one and others, the man on the tape began to unfold and unpack exactly how it was all going to happen. It was spine-tingling stuff. It had a profound effect. There were people who left, who moved out of that town to get out of the centers of population. Now, mind you, this was a town with a population of 3,500 only three or four of which were legitimate sinners. 
And yet they moved from there to get out of the centers of population because they understood the times, they said. They were like the men of Issachar. It's time to go. And what happened? Here we are. Nothing happened. I remember another man. It was another small town. It's where I went to seminary. While I was studying there, his sermons and his teachings suddenly took at least that part of the country by the throat and said, listen. And he preached and he took some of these words and he used them to read into what was happening in the world at that time, especially in terms of the economy. The economy is going to collapse. This is the month, and he predicted, this is the month in which it will collapse. And when it collapses, that's when the final events will immediately begin to transpire, and Jesus will come. Once again, there was a fervor that accompanied everything that he says. said, I can remember sitting in the campus church, large church, on a Saturday night, packed, listening as this man preached. I can remember a question he asked. He asked, when was the last time you saw an Adventist church filled with people on a Saturday night? It was sobering stuff. He didn't predict the date, but he got perilously close. It's right upon us. He understood, like the men of Issachar, the times. This is what we have to do. What happened? Here we are. I remember years later another man. I actually knew this particular man, wonderful person. He had taken great pains to spend time studying the prophecies, the prophecies of this book. He had sketched out how he understood every event would transpire and what exactly would happen. And then he began to teach it. And once again, there was great fervor that accompanied what he taught. People were drawn in. People changed their lives. They changed their careers and professions. It had a profound impact. He didn't set any dates, but he got, again, fairly close. He said, these are the times. This is the end. This is the sobering time. Like the men of Issachar, he said, he understood the times. What happened? Here we are. I can remember some of the effects of such preaching. For example, I remember distinctly a person who in speaking of that second preacher said to me, that man messed me up. Pushed him away from the church because of all of the up and down fervor that happened. In fact, I came some years ago to call it eschatological caffeine. It's getting hyped up on a certainty. This is it. This is the time. Now it's happening. We have to be ready. And then it passes, and we crash, and we're in worse shape than we were before until the next hit of eschatological caffeine comes. So the question is, what do we do? How do we approach this?
How do we approach COVID-19? How do we understand the times? This clearly is a sign of the last days. What does that mean? And what ought we to do? Let me offer two suggestions. Two suggestions. The first suggestion is, in general terms, stay general. In general terms, stay general. So what does that mean? Well, it means take, for example, this passage in Luke 21 or in Mark 13 or in Matthew 24 and 25 and study the parables that Jesus gives, the parables that have to do directly with his coming, and make decisions about how to live based on those. And one of the things that becomes evident is we don't need to try to identify every tree to appreciate the forest. I remember a pastor who told about his church studying the book of Revelation. And as they studied the book of Revelation, he said they went into it with a certain degree of uncertainty and maybe even a little fear because there are so many symbolic themes and elements in the book of Revelation. They didn't know if they'd be able to understand them all, if they would be wrong in how they interpreted them. And so the pastor in his church made a specific decision. They said, we're going to stay with the forest rather than all the individual trees. In other words, in general, we're going to stay general. We're going to look at the bigger picture. So that's what they did. They read. They prayed. They studied. And in general, they sought to stay general. By the time they were done, said the pastor, it was curious what had occurred. They drew some, some, some conclusions, no doubt about that. They decided, for example, that the line of distinction between those who follow the Lamb and those who follow the beast, as you follow the story of Revelation, becomes increasingly clear and distinct. They discovered that it would be more clear who the Lamb was and who the beast was as they moved through. They determined that, that those who followed the Lamb would be willing to do so at any cost. Those who followed the beast would not have their minds changed. They determined that things would get a whole lot worse before they suddenly got a whole lot better. And they determined that in the end, the lamb wins. By the time, said the pastor, we were done studying Revelation in that way, we couldn't identify and name the type of tree of every tree in the forest. But what we could do was we had made a commitment to follow the Lamb whithersoever He might go. That's what I mean when I stay, say, in general, stay general. You may not know all the details of every event that happens either in the news or in the prophecies, but you can get a general picture of what God is doing in the world. And you can follow him. That's suggestion number one. Suggestion number two. Not just in general, stay general, but suggestion number two. Every day, focus on today. 
Every day, focus on today. In other words, make certain that your walk with Jesus every day is growing, becoming deeper, becoming more vital, more healthy, more robust. Deepen in your walk with Jesus every day. After all, Jesus did tell us back in the Sermon on the Mount to not worry about tomorrow. He says, tomorrow's got plenty of its own problems. Just focus on today. Now, what's curious about that is that once again, in those three places, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, Jesus tells parables. And as you read and study those parables, you conclude that his focus is never on being ready then, sometime way down the road. It's on being ready now, today. Every day, focus on today. In fact, we here at Loma Linda University Church a number of years ago, back in 2016, we focused on not totally, but on the parables, largely, of Matthew 24 and 25 in a series called Ever Ready. I just found out from our media crew that they're replaying that on our YouTube channel. So you're welcome to watch it there. That's where we study those parables. But I can tell you what I drew from a study of those parables. In terms of readiness, Jesus says, do what I left for you to do. Use the talents and abilities that I have given you to increase the kingdom. Care deeply for the simple and basic needs of others and know me on a deeper level in an ongoing way every day. That's how we ought to respond. That's how every day we focus on today. In that series, I told a story that I want to tell you again. I love the story. It was told by a pastor named Lee Eklov. Lee Eklov told the story about an Air Force pilot U.S. Air Force pilot by the name of Randy Robbins. Kind of gave me a start when I first read it, but it wasn't Roberts, Randy Robbins. Randy Robbins was an Air Force pilot in Iraq during the sad war there. He was deployed for a period of time and then suddenly discovered that he and his crew were going to be able to come home. So they didn't alert their families. They didn't tell them. The war had pretty much, for them anyway, ended. They weren't sure when they would return, but then the order was given, you can go home. And so they winged their way home, anxious to surprise their families. They landed in Massachusetts, drove for a long period into western Pennsylvania. They finally got to the home where Randy Robbins and his family lived. They, when they arrived there, there was a large welcome banner out front that said, Welcome home, Dad. And he thought, how in the world did they know? I didn't tell them. Nobody in the, in the crew had told them. How in the world did they know? Well, I want to read you how Randy Robbins relates what happened next. He writes, When I walked into the house, the kids, about half-dressed for school, screamed, Daddy! Susan came running down the hall. She looked terrific. Hair fixed, makeup on, a crisp yellow dress. How did you know? I asked. I didn't, she answered through tears of joy. But once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. That's it. That's what Jesus teaches. The war was over at Calvary. It was done. It's finished. There's mop-up to do. 
but it was over then. Now it's our task to be ready every day. So then why get so caught up in all of the intricate details? Why, in fact, are there prophecies? Why is there a book called Daniel and a book called Revelation? Because God does want us to know something about what's happening, to understand the tenor of the times, to be like the men of Issachar. He does want us to understand that. But at the same time, sometimes we have gotten so caught up in the headlines and what might be happening behind the headlines that we seem to think, if I can just figure it all out, if I can get it graphed out, if I can get it mapped out, then I'll be saved. I'll be ready. But you know, there's something that Scripture makes absolutely clear. If it makes anything clear, it makes this clear. And that is this. We are saved by the grace of Jesus. Period. We access that grace through faith. That's how we receive it. But we are saved by His grace alone. We're not saved by knowledge. We're not saved by our own works. We're not saved by figuring out what's happening in Washington, D.C., or Rome, or Moscow. We're not saved by having the ability to read the headlines and sort through possibilities and religio-political intricacies. We're not saved by any one of those realities. We are saved by the grace of Jesus. The Bible is filled with texts that tell us that. What about Paul when he penned the letter to the Ephesians? And he said to them, For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. What about Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believeth might not perish, but have eternal life. What about Paul in his letter to the Romans? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Or consider even the pen of John in his first epistle. When he writes, and this is the record, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you, says John, that you may know that you have eternal life. Or what about Paul again in that great letter to the Romans when he said, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we could go on and on because time and time and time again the Scripture makes abundantly clear 
that the gift of salvation is exactly that, a gift. Furthermore, the Bible makes clear to us not to get involved in speculating, imagining, trying to put things together that really we don't know. I'll give you just one example of that. It comes from Paul in what we think were some of the last letters he wrote when he wrote to Timothy, writing to his young son in the faith. The first letter to Timothy, verses 3 and 4, listen to this. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain persons not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. In other words, Paul is saying, tell those people to stop it. It's speculations. They don't know that for a fact. And what they need to be doing is to be involved in God's work, which is by faith. So we come around again to the men of Issachar. They understood the times. They discerned the moving of God's Spirit. They had courage to act. So what about us? Is COVID-19 a sign that we're living in the last days? Absolutely. There's no question in my mind. I'll tell you this. I hope it's the very last days. I'm ready to be done with this mess and to see Jesus face to face. But having said that, there's one thing I know, a lot of things I don't, but one thing I know. Whenever Jesus comes, be it very, very soon or a long way yet down the road, my salvation is because of His grace. He saved me yesterday. He saves me today. He'll save me tomorrow. He'll save me on the day when I see Him face to face. And every step along the way, I can rest my soul in Him because of His wonderful grace.